0: So my name is Julie Hollenbach, Um, today I'm in conversation with Dr. Carla Taunton, and we're sitting down to record this podcast. It's a rainy Thursday in August, we've been talking about doing this for almost a year. But before we introduce ourselves and get into uh, our conversation, I'll share with people listening to this CAA Conversations podcast episode, a bit of context. Carla is someone I met while I was finishing my graduate studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. She came in to do a workshop with grad students about writing the thesis, not so much how to write it, but how to survive it and remain human through it. By the way, my two favorite tips from that session that I still practice are writing on a bouncy exercise ball and creating curated playlists to listen to while working on each chapter. But that workshop really started for me a mentorship relationship with Carla almost, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And I'm grateful that it has grown into a friendship. And I'm pleased to now be colleagues with Carla at NASCAD University or the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design here on Chipotle, or what's currently called Halifax. I'm so grateful to learn from the work that Carla and her collaborators do on decolonization and the critical settler responsibility in relation to work in academia, in classrooms and in museums and art galleries. I pitched doing this podcast episode to Carla for two reasons. The first is that I, as I develop and work through my own critical settler methodology in these areas, I have questions about the nuances of this complex practice that I would love to tease out in conversation and I think this work is so important and that hearing Carla talk about the amazing work that she and others do would be a huge resource to people committed to developing their own methodologies of seller responsibility and accountability. So to get us started, um, Carla, could you share with us a little bit about who you are?
1: Great. Thank you so much, Julie. it's really wonderful to be here. So thank you so much for this invitation and thank you CAA for providing this platform. Um, this is my first podcast, so I'm really excited to be, um, you know, in this process of, of learning as well. Um, before I just introduce myself, I just want to situate myself and our, our conversation as you have done um, in the context of Mi'kmaqi, uh, and the Cestral unceded territories of uh, the Mi'kmaq Nation. Um, and also that we, um, work and, and uh, live in territories that have um, treaties that were signed between the British crown and um, the Mi'kmaq nation in the 1700s, the, the treaties of peace and friendship. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but just as a means to um, situate ourselves and to think through what does it mean to live in indigenous sovereign territories as, as white settlers. Um, so I am a, a white settler uh, scholar um, of art history. And I work at NASCAG University as um, a specialist in critical conversations around curating, but also in terms of issues around settler-Indigenous relations. Um, And I'm actually from the West Coast. I was born in unceded territory of Coast Salish peoples. Um, which is now in a, in a major suburb of Vancouver called Richmond. Um, when I was growing up in the 80s, it was a much smaller uh, kind of developing suburb, but now it's a, a kind of a mega uh, hub just out right next to the airport in Vancouver. Um, just a little bit about myself, and we can talk more about this in terms of uh, my methodologies, um, but I'm also um, uh, uh, what I call myself a daughter of colonialism, which is actually Emma Laroque's, um kind of statement. Uh, a white settler who has long-standing um, ancestors, um, and living here in the Americas. My earliest ancestors arrived on the shores of what is now Connecticut in 1632, and that was Francis and um, Mary Purdy. And those ancestors ended up um, obviously having many children, and those um, immediate uh, family relations ended up in Nova Scotia after the American Revolution um, as as loyalists. And uh, Samuel Purdy came up in, in the 1700s with his wife um, and family, Esther. And so moving here, I ended up kind of reconnecting with those roots. Um, my last name, Taunton, those ancestors um, came in 1906 into the port of Montreal, um, coming from the southern part of... England. So I have strong English ties, but I also have strong Scottish ties. And those ways of immigration started as early as the 1700s and as late as the early 1900s. Um, so these are the people that I belong to. Um, they're also a part of the legacies that I hold as a settler in terms of my, um, my inheritance as a beneficiary of colonialism. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about this later, but these are important kind of understandings for myself and how I situate my place in the context of what is now uh, Canada. And what does it mean um, to live here um, as a white settler in the context of occupying indigenous territories, whether that be here um, in, in the context of Halifax and, and Chipotle, or in the context of British Columbia. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. I'm also um, from a family of kind of, uh, grew up in kind of an upper middle class, uh, white family of amazing parents um, who taught me the importance of humility and hard work. Um, they come from a sport background, so a very different background. My dad is a sports medicine doctor. My mom has a master's degree in kinesiology um, and my sister's also an orthopedic surgeon. So we from a lot of privilege, but they were also the first uh, generation to go to university. Um, and they were trailblazers in the fact that they developed things that didn't exist. And so I watched them, whether it be a run, like the Vancouver Sun Run or the Vancouver Marathon, that didn't exist prior to my parents and their friends working together to create these, these spaces for the things that they believed in and community gathering. And so I'll think a little bit about the things that they taught me along the way through these
0: conversations. Thank you. So before we get into it, I'll just let people know a little bit about myself as well. Um, My name is Julie. I'm a queer cis woman. I was born on unceded territory in what is currently called British Columbia, so the interior. Um, My parents are, well, they are two Germans who just before my birth, newly immigrated to that area. Today, I live uh, uninvited on Midmagi as Carla mentioned, uh, the traditional and ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. I work with Carla at NASCAD as an assistant professor of craft history and material culture. Um, and there I have um, the privilege to engage with working uh, on material culture, on craft, and thinking about uh, craft as a social practice that is entrenched with, or entrenched in historical modes of being and placemaking. So specifically, with what is craft's connection to the settler colonial project in the Canadian context? I have a very multidisciplinary pro- practice. Um, I'm an artist, as well as a curator. And my work really focuses and values collective work over individualism dynamic activity over static presentation and research questions over research findings or claims. Um, Maybe a good place to start our conversation is to share or touch on a few of the key terms and ideas that are gonna keep cropping up throughout our conversation. Uh, The first one and the good place to start is talking about decolonization. Carla, how would you define or how would you explain decolonization to someone who might be engaging with it newly?
1: I think this is a great place to start. Um, And obviously, there are many definitions of decolonization, depending on where you're accessing it from, your vantage point, your subject positionality. Um, I came to really understand the notions of decolonizing and decolonial practice through the work of Linda Tuhiwa-Smith from the context of Aotearoa as a Maori scholar, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking through her 25 Indigenous projects, whether that be storytelling, um, reclaiming, um, remembering these really important projects. And that's where my kind of my my point of, of entry was. And then through critical settler engagement, I started thinking about the simultaneous projects of decolonization. So the fact and and not to create a a binary here, um, but, you know, thinking of them as as multiples um, and the fact that we have indigenous projects of decolonization, which have to do with centralizing indigenous thought, a prioritization of, of indigenous methodologies, epistemologies, ontologies, so ways of knowing and being in the world. Um, the making sure of spaces for resilience conversations but, and also resurgence of indigenous practices in terms of customary practices um, and also in terms of language, uh, cultural knowledges, as well as, as thought. And at the same time, so those things are happening the necessity for that to happen at the same time, there's a critical settler or non-indigenous project of unraveling and unearthing um, in many times invisible uh, colonial structures that have become naturalized in a way that in many cases folks aren't even aware of and so whether that be within our institutions understanding currently in our moment um, that is happening um, globally in terms of really understanding systemic racism so how has colonial order uh, informed the ways in which we live not only in terms of our everyday but also in terms of Where we work, so within the context for us, in terms of the gallery context, in terms of the university context, um, and so really making sure we have space and time to um, showcase and really um, rupture those colonial structures, which are violent and which privilege obviously whiteness um, and perpetuate in different ways. It looks different than say in the 1900s, but it's all present and it's all a continuum of 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 uh, perpetuating the dispossession of indigenous peoples, lands, thought, thinking. Um, and so that's why it's key for that centralization. Um, so I think decolonization can be understood as a radical transformation. I think in terms of that meaning is that this can be radical for, for an institution where you actually have to destabilize uh, your foundations and there's rupture. And so there's going to be um, potential for unruliness is this making sense, Julie? I'm just kind of keep, I'm thinking about these, these yeah. um, kind of different factors of it. Obviously, it's a massive concept, but I think for, for white settlers, I think it's really that idea of making things visible mm-hmm. um, and that idea also that it's active.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's an active and ongoing process. It does, and, and because of the settler nation context of, say, United States or Canada or Australia or New Zealand... Um, there's this large, large, large populations of non-Indigenous people. So whether that be white settlers, new arrivals, refugees, people of color, black communities that are diaspora connected to transatlantic slave trade, all of these different components of what means to be non-Indigenous bodies and communities living on and sovereign territory. There's going to be an ongoingness to how we decolonize because where do we go home to? Mm -hmm. And
0: there's a one way of decolonizing.
1: Right. Yeah. So this conversation totally needs to not be prescriptive at all. Those are just ideas and practices that I've come up with because I've had the opportunity to be mentored by so many Indigenous thinkers, as well as incredible um, people of color, Black scholars and, and white settlers who've been so generous in terms of sharing their ideas, whether that be in our own relation, um, but also just through their writing and their thinking and, and being at conferences and things like that. So that kind of collaborative exchange. So I think that's really key is that op- op- opportunity for unsettling through collaboration in terms of a, a colonial, a decolonial structure and practice.
0: So perhaps the next jumping off point is talking about how in the Canadian context, uh, the Commission, like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, has impacted that process and in a very complex way. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, totally. So, for the for those of you from the United States or from outside of the context of Canada, maybe you are aware, Canada has been has undergone a process of reconciliation, official state-sanctioned reconciliation. So, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is actually was actually a part of um, the larger Um, Indian residential school settlement agreement process. And so there were many factions of that, but the TRC focused, and it was technically only a five-year process, even though this all started back um, in the late 90s, this whole kind of trajectory of of reconciliation uh, within the Canadian context. But from 2010 to 2015, um, there were national gatherings around reconciliation. And the TRC's mandate, the focus of this, was to inform all Canadians about the impacts and experiences of residential schools. The earliest schools opening in in the 1800s and the last school closing in 1996. Um, And so the hundreds of thousands of children that have gone through the process of of being removed from their families and and being placed in um, state-funded, church-run residential schools. And multiple generations of children um, who experienced unbelievable um, neglect and abuse and the impacts that have had on indigenous communities and families and so looking at intergenerational impacts not only in terms of that trauma but also in terms of that resilience so the mandate of the TRC was to create a large research center that would house and host in good ways um, indigenous lived experience stories testimonies so it was about truth truth-telling and so one of the components of the TRC was c- creating these places for statement gathering. And I actually worked as a statement gatherer in 2010 at the first national gathering in Winnipeg. And I was invited to participate with the Legacy of Hope Foundation. And I was introduced to the Legacy of Hope Foundation from my colleague, Dr. Heather Gloriorte, who's still a colleague of mine today. And we worked with many other Um, grad students and and folks who had extensive experience with residential schools um, to think about how best to do that statement gathering. So there were no prompt questions. You were there as a witness. You were there to um, record that information and make sure that you provided um, with um, elders and knowledge keepers Um, making sure that people had what they needed, whether that be a glass of water, opportunity to stop, an opportunity to decide they didn't want to be a part of that process um, so that you could actually um, support them in telling their truth, telling their story about what they went through and and what's happening with them today so that started in 2010 and the last meeting uh, national meeting was in 2015 when we had the report official report come out and the 2015 calls to action which are 94 calls to action um the real if you haven't looked at it um it's online it gives a pdf i actually use it in my teaching a lot of the times to think about how colonialism has actually impacted all facets of life so it's a call not only to obvious components of impacts of of residential schools in terms of health and wellness, um, but also in terms of museums and art galleries, libraries, uh, language revitalization, sports and culture in in that regard, Um, but also in terms of how the language used, uh, the last one is the 94th call is is the language used in terms of um, citizenry, in terms of uh, new Canadians and the language that is brought forward when they become um, Canadian citizens in that ceremony and that ritual. So the TRC, and you know, so this is kind of the mandate of the TRC and we can critique the TRC as a national kind of um, phenomenon or practice of, of reconciliation, who, who's actually benefiting from the reconciliation. But I also think there's really important moments there where it was really su- sur- meant to be survivor-centric and people worked really hard to provide that opportunity. Um, So the TRC, especially in 2015, when these calls to action came about in Canada, really became a pivotal moment for a catalyst of institutional awakening in terms of the fact that all institutions in Canada, whether you're a bank or a university or a library um, or artist-run center, um, organizations, associations, needed to pay attention and be aware of the fact that you are connected to a legacy of colonialism and so the calls to action like all calls to action you know it depends on how people are engaging and can they be performative and but I think we have seen since 2015 some really profound institutional shifts um in the context of Canada sorry I'm a chatter so Julie (laughs) jump in and (laughs) and make sure I might be missing things
0: (laughs) no you're going in like the great like it's a good direction and it's a really important conversation my next like thought or question was going to be about talking about treaty and how so much of decolonization reconciliation needs to start with treaty and how that's very specific to place and to people um could yeah. you riff on that a little bit and yeah. tie that into this conversation
1: for sure totally um So being that we're both from the context of what we call now British Columbia, where there are very few treaties that were actually signed, uh, most of the territory is not actually under any kind of of treaty between the two, the partnership of the British Crown, basically, um, and Indigenous Nations. I hadn't thought about treaty in the same ways because of the location of where I was born. Um, And then I went to University of Victoria uh, and then ended up in Ontario. And when I was in Ontario, um, both at Carleton and at Queens, that's really when I started thinking through more uh, conversations of treaty. And then moving here, things became even more embodied. Um, In the context of Again, as we said at the beginning, we have very old standing from the 1700s treaties that were actually about coexistence. And so I think key to decolonization, the TRC conversation and treaty is the acknowledgement, the ignitement, um, the understanding in an embodied way of indigenous sovereignty. And um, Fiona Nichol talks about this, as the notion of being in sovereignty. So in order to to do um, productive work, ethical work as a white settler around decolonization, there's a necessity to understand what it means to live in indigenous sovereignty. Not meaning co-opting, but meaning, how do you be um, a good guest or a good neighbor in my understanding? And so as treaty people, there's an idea that it's it's a relationship between two nations um, in the context of of say Mi'kmaq. two nations. So in this case, it was the British Crown and the Mi'kmaq in this, just to centralize it in the context of Nova Scotia where we are. And within that, there's, there's these really kind of foundational protocols and principles that are about responsibility, reciprocity, respect, under the notion of friendship. And so it's not about co-opting each other. Um, it's actually about maintaining um, space and autonomy, self-determination of thought and, and ways of being in the world, and at the same time, coming together at times in spaces of coexistence in a reciprocal way. Obviously that has not happened here, but we actually have the foundations uh, in, in terms of thinking about people think, oh, well, what are the impacts of the TRC? How are we gonna decolonize? What does this mean? What, is, what, is, can, what can this look like in terms of our future, future, sorry, our futurities? And actually, if we look at things like the Peace and Friendship Treaties, as well as the pre-existing confederacies, like the Wabanaki Confederacy, that was here in the context of Mi'kmaq down into Maine, uh, the state of Maine, or New England, as well as say, um, uh, within the Haudenosaunee nation, looking at those confederacies, we can then start to see a democratic system of of coexistence. We have the blueprints, if you want to call them that. We have the map. Um, But in order to understand treaty from settlers, there's that idea that you have to actually learn about treaty. And so in this case, in our context of say, where we are, Julie, Most folks, white folks, are not aware of what the treaties actually say. So one key part of that decolonial process, or what I'm calling embodying treaty as a methodology, is to actually learn about treaty and the differences. So if you look at the treaties here in terms of those historic treaties, or if you look at indigenous treaties, which are principles, again, of reciprocity and responsibility and exchange, um, such as the One Dish, One Spoon uh, Treaty within the um, Great Lakes District with the Haudenosaunee, Anishnabek, as well as the Mississauga Nations. Looking to those principles and learning them, understanding there's distinct differences, and then also understanding how the notions of treaty was deployed in, in really aggressive, assimilist and uh, colonial ways in the number of treaties in the prairies, and how those are all different. But again, going back to those indigenous concepts of treaty, where then we understand our accountabilities if you are coming from a non-Indigenous place, especially as white settlers. Um, I find treaty really powerful. It creates an access point um, for non-Indigenous folks to participate in thinking about their role Um, So, that it's not passive, again, that decolonial kind of active uh, participation. But it also provides roadmaps in terms of how to enter into those conversations, how to be respectful, um, following protocol, thinking about some moments to step up because you are a treaty person and you have those responsibilities. But also, as a treaty person, there's times for you to step back and to listen and to pay attention and to understand that you're not the expert in the room. You're actually the person that's there as 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 a guest and thinking about what does that mean to be a guest in terms of not not in a passive way but actually there are protocols if you go to someone's house there are protocols that you that you participate in um Mm -hmm. to be a productive and ethical um uh a guest and neighbor Mm -hmm. yeah those are some of the some of the kind of things that just kind of come off um i think about when i think about treaty
0: Mm -hmm. um I mean, Eva Mackey's work is really helpful in thinking about treaty as a living document or something that is always being built on and evolving and not just a historical or a static document. Yes. Oh,
1: Eva's work is, a, is phenomenal. Reading her piece um, in, her new, in her, new, her new book, I mean, her early work and um, House of Difference was actually something that radically shifted my understanding uh, back in grad school. I remember being in a class with Dr. Linda Jessup at Queens and I had seen Eva's work uh, Mackey's work prior to that but I hadn't spent a lot of time with it and when she explains this notion of being Canadian Canadians and what that meant versus the hyphenization and the notions of assimilation and who gets to have that privileged conversation of being Canadian um, I remember that really profoundly shifting my understanding of myself um and then her new publication from 2016 I think um is it unsettling unsettling expectations I think that's what it is um talks about treaty as verb and that again that idea that active um participation of of being within treaty and ways in which settlers can be a part of, of that unsettled expectations sorry sorry Eva um, but uh, if you haven't read it I really recommend looking at at Eva Mackey's work coming out of Carleton University um, she's also an incredible mentor to so many and uh, her generosity of exchange I've really benefited from in terms of reading her work, but also in terms of working with her in graduate committees. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, even when you're working in those contexts, those methodologies of of treaty as a verb, that active uh, participation, I can see being a really valuable methodology.
0: So, I mean, something that is really important is to move the idea of, of decolonization from an abstract or a theoretical pursuit or inquiry into a lived practice, an individual practice, and a methodology. Um, You're talking about treaty as like having a relationship, an individual relationship with treaty. Uh, Can you maybe flesh out or take it from like an abstract to a very specific place for you what your, um, what like decolonization means to you personally in your life, what your personal practice or your methodology looks like, and also, like the evolution or the development, like how did that develop? It wasn't something that was fully formed.
1: Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Thank you. Um, it really goes back to there was a moment, and Leah dexter and I wrote uh, a piece in 2013 in uh, Fuse's last issue, Fuse Magazine's. I uh, had a special uh, issue on decolonial um, aesthetics in terms of art practice, and we had a really amazing opportunity to have a conversation. And I met Leah. <clears throat> I guess a year prior to the publication um, in Sault Ste. Marie at actually in a symposium on reconciliation where some of the big thinkers and leaders of the conversations were there such as Paulette Regan um, who has an unbelievable book on on unsettling settler um, experiences of of history and focusing on the experience of residential schools as well as um, artists such as like Peter Morin, Ayumi Goto, Um, obviously Leah was there, France Trepanier, Chris Creighton Kelly, so some leaders in the Canadian context around critical interventions but also in terms of Indigenous practice and so we had this opportunity to write in 2013 for this Fuse piece and that's where I was able to kind of talk about one of the big moments in my trajectory which was I was doing my PhD at Queen's and I had this incredible support um, from my committee, from Linda Jessup and Susan Lord and Clive Robertson, folks that that, didn't, um, that really wanted me to reach out and create a larger uh, structure of support through engagement with Indigenous thinkers and, and, and curators. And um, so I was doing that, and I was doing, working on my interviews with some of the artists and getting prepared, to going through my ethics and thinking about interviewing Rebecca Belmore and Shirley Landell and Dana Claxton. And thinking about the work of Shelley Nero. And so these like matriarchs of, of indigenous art. And I was looking at Lori Blondeau. I was looking at performance practices by indigenous women. And I was learning about all these histories and these entanglements and these experiences and memories. And, and I realized that I didn't know my own. And I was very fortunate that my grandmother and my nana were still alive back on the West Coast. And so I paused my research and I went home. And I spent time. So a big part of my process in terms of a personal process is knowing um, who I am and where I'm from and who I belong to. And that's how when I started talking about who I was, I talked about my ancestors from the 1600s. And through this, it's an ongoing, cause I'm still learning more things all the time. And recently, and, I, and I, it was a big gap for me, I realized I was thinking about the ancestors from the 1600s and thinking about the histories of slavery Not only, especially in Canada, because we have this real disconnect in Canada that there wasn't slavery here. And then doing a bit more research and realizing that those ancestors in the early 1600s and then those that came here um, into Nova Scotia as loyalists were slave owners. And that is a part of my family legacy. And I need to be aware of that. And then also, so there's that. And there's also the fact that my family's progression into kind of a middle class, upper middle class location of privilege and their movement from what is from basically the East Coast all the way to the West Coast follows a very similar parallel development of very aggressive um, colonial policy. So through the number of treaty systems, through the obviously the development of the railroad, the dispossession of indigenous lands, um, cultural genocide genocide in Canada. And that's a part of my family lineage. So knowing those things, understanding those things and thinking about how we benefited from all of that violence. And within that also, through spending time with my Nana and my grandma, I also learned about all these really amazing stories of, of, of loss and courage and hope and thinking about my great grandmother moving to, what, you know, to, to Winnipeg in the early 1900s by herself as a 16 year old. Uh, what was that like? Um, the loneliness of those kinds of migration stories, um, mm-hmm. but also the connectivity and that, those moments of triumph where, where there was love that kind of brought people together um, and the generosity that my, my grandma and my nana had in sharing those stories, um, the impacts that ha- we, we had in terms of the world wars and some of my ancestors were part of those and there were also those people that were lost. And so understanding the complexity of, of my story is really key to my understanding of, of who I am within the context of settler colonialism. Going back to Emma LaRock, um, Métis scholar, had this incredible statement about cleaning up the colonial debris. That's, that's, that's my job as, as a white settler, but I can't do that without understanding who I am and who I belong to. And so there's that kind of family legacy, but then there's also the people that I work with and for within the Indigenous co- context of, of art community and scholarship, but also um, students that I work with who come from all kinds of backgrounds. And so I think for, for me to be able to do work in a good way and be generous, um, I really had to figure out who I was in that context. And again, this is just my way of doing things. And that's not a prescribed, you know, you do this and this, but my importance was decolonizing not only my understanding of myself, um, but in terms of my mind, but also in terms of my heart. And um, that was that decolonial space of of love came forward in, in that as well. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really important point that in order to do this kind of work, in order to really take up decolonization, it has to start with yourself, with self-work, with work with your families, um, your specific context places, before it can be something that is brought into Know, work proper or workspaces or larger yeah. communities.
1: Yeah, I think as, as, as intellectuals, as academics, there's this idea that this only it's like this kind of um, intellectual um, process and that's mm-hmm. important. Do the reading, spend time mm-hmm. um, with, um, there's so much literature that we can engage with and an incredible scholarship, especially by Indigenous scholars. So spend time with that. Um, mm-hmm. And I do, I, I feel like I stand on the shoulders of these shoulders of these great thinkers, but spend time with yourself if you can. And, you're, and, and this depends, again, everything is very specific. Not all, I, I had the privilege of having grandparents. I had the privilege of having those folks available to me. It wasn't a space of trauma. It wasn't a space, uh, there, was like, there was a level, level of vulnerability, but it, it was a safe space for me. And so that's all depending on our, our family makeups. Also, if you've been adopted, all of these different components can provide access points, but also barriers. So, Mm -hmm. again, um, when we say who you belong to doesn't necessarily mean it can be your created family, Mm
0: -hmm. um, the family
1: that you that you have created, that it is your family. And those components make up who you
0: are and who you belong to. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, what you're really pointing out is the troublesomeness of engaging with these ideas in a western academic context where they're you know like the prescription or the framework is so much about intellectualizing these practices and ideas that are meant to be embodied and lived and so taking them out of that context and you know feeling them or being in space in a body with these realities these histories and these ideas is um, something that I found and continue to find challenging. Because I don't know, like I, the, the training I received was so much that, that my body wasn't really brought into discourses in an actual way.
1: Yes, no, for sure. And, and the idea of having, um, having feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I think that's key all around decolonizing, especially talking to and thinking about white settlers, is that this work has to be done outside of the context of your classroom, or sometimes your research, because there's going to be things that you need to work through that should not be a part of of a conversation that burdens, once again, your Indigenous scholars, your colleagues, Mm -hmm. uh, folks of colour, your Black colleagues, uh, who live this every day. So um, that idea that read, you know, take time and spend time with all of that thought and that thinking and spend time with yourself. And the fact that, colonization impacts everybody in a different way. Um, and, then, and then spend time thinking about um, what does that mean for your, for your work? And I think a lot of times with the TRC, a lot of folks were like, oh, I need to all of a sudden become an expert on indigenous lived experience. And it's like, no, 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 actually, no, we just, you just need to be aware of the fact that these things happened, that these truths happened. Um, and that for those of you that are, for, for myself, come from a white, white context of white settler context, That we've actually benefited from this dispossession, Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not about having to become experts at all. It's actually about learning about what colonization really is, because Mm -hmm. for the longest time that responsibility was up to Indigenous folks. And actually, um, as Roger Eep says, like it's actually we need to address the settler problem of this.
0: Yeah,
1: and it's actually settler's role in dismantling um, these structures so that Indigenous folks can do all the things that they're already doing. Yeah, getting out of the way. Yeah, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you've been working or doing, like developing this practice in a personal sense, but then also in doing this work in your classrooms, in museum spaces and other institutional contexts. Can you talk about Um, the commitment to decolonizing decolonizing academia and museums, uh, maybe starting with what that looked like when you started doing this work versus and then maybe talking about how it is now. Yeah, I think one of
1: the interesting things is that when I started my grad school um, and my PhD specifically in Canada, there were two indigenous scholars
0: when would this have been?
1: So 2007. So Sherry Farrell-Rissette was one of, when I was graduating in 2011 in terms of finding an external, Uh, Sherry was, Dr. Farrell-Rissette, was one of the scholars, um, indigenous scholars, is a full-time faculty member at, at the university. And so you think about that, and then you think about what's happening now, and there's a a growing critical mass, not only in terms of art history programs, but also in terms of studio arts programs uh, in the context of Canada. And and it's growing in in the United States as well. And um, so when I started my PhD, I was working on indigenous focused um, topic, obviously. I looked at indigenous performance art, and I thought through that, in the context of who I was and started thinking about, I, I, you know, there needs to be um, a methodology here for me to, to critically engage, but not to co-opt and how do I do this? And I wasn't sure. And I didn't have a lot of access points. And I luckily found the work of Avril Bell and she's a Pakia uh, scholar, a uh, white settler scholar in New Zealand. And, Dr. Eva Mackie brought her into Carlton and I I drove from Kingston to Ottawa, which is not far. It's a couple hour drive to hear this talk. And she talked about this thing of of settler responsibility and I'd never heard it before. And I hadn't seen it anywhere in art history. Mm -hmm. And she was a huge um, uh, (laughs) mentor um, for me without her even knowing it. And so Avril, if you ever hear this, thank you so much. Um, Because I didn't, I didn't have some of those access points, but I also looked at trans, um, Uh, transnational feminisms, uh, looked at people like um, Shireen Razak, and thinking about decolonizing feminisms, and was able to kind of move and, and weave together a methodology that made sense for me. And so when I started working through my dissertation, I really thought through and tried to embody and try to bring forward a practice of settler responsibility. And in that, I was trying to decolonize my own writing style. So trying to create spaces of intervention, Um, making sure that the artist was speaking for themselves, um, creating an opportunity.
0: Can you you talk about why that's so important, though, in terms of the genealogy of the discipline?
1: Oh, for sure. Well, so we know that for the longest time, we had writing about Indigenous people, uh, teaching about Indigenous art, curating about, versus Indigenous uh, art being um, a conversation that was self-determined by Indigenous leadership and scholars and thinkers and artists, Um, so that difference between about versus with and for, um, so when you start thinking about writing, it's not a, you know, this, this kind of practice of objectifying, but more so a collaborative conversation perhaps. Um, so that's really kind of really exciting to think about how can you create parallel narratives or how can you create a treaty conversation? Um, how can you create sites of reciprocity? How can you really, um, be overt about settler um, privilege, in terms of white privilege, also the the legacies of um, white scholars, and again, there are wonderful people who've done really important work, but also the history of white scholarship being a colonizing um, practice that really, again, dispossessed Indigenous voices uh, from the conversation and who very much controlled a certain type of narrative that was disconnected from language and and customary practice um, and also in terms of leadership, indigenous leadership and sovereignty. So we've seen since my starting in 2007 to now this incredible shift um, where the leadership in indigenous art histories in Canada are indigenous scholars. And I get to participate in those conversations at times. And I also, Um, the opportunity of witnessing and learning from this incredible uh, group of scholars. And uh, many times are also curators. And that's kind of also an interesting thing to think about in the context of of indigenous art histories is that so much of it has been written by indigenous curators who were also artists in many cases who were really uh, working in spaces of advocacy because there weren't contexts for indigenous artists to be, you know, exhibited. So, many of these folks turned into curators, people like Ryan Rice, um, and then you also had incredible curators like Leanne Martin, Mohawk, a curator, Leanne Martin, who has been, I think, integral for showing us, um, the kind of, the dynamism of Indigenous scholarship.
0: So in decolonizing, um, academic professionalism and practice, a really important aspect, it seems that what I'm hearing is that, um, you know, rather than co-opting Indigenous cultural production and content and ideas, um, you know, is understanding when it's important to listen and when it's important to speak up, when it's important to take space or when it's important to make space. Um, You've talked a little bit about uh, an idea of generous listening that is drawn from various other sort of Indigenous practices. Can you talk a little bit about how you understand generous listening and why generous listening is important to settler responsibility?
1: Yeah. Thank you for that, Julie. Um, I'll go back to being a young, you know, burgeoning activist. And I had had the opportunity to learn about all these, you know, really important uh, critical issues around race and gender, sexualities. And um, I remember being mentored by some folks and they just said, you know, you have to also be generous. And I didn't really understand what that meant at first and that politicization. And I, and there was an example of when you go home for Thanksgiving with your family who maybe not have had the opportunity to think about things in these ways, be generous with that information. And, um, and so I kind of brought that with me through my practice. And then being um, mentored by and working in collaboration with and learning from and with Indigenous scholars, such as um, Dr. Sharif Rosset and the concept of the kitchen, the Métis kitchen table, methodology, um, Dr. Dylan Minor, Métis scholar, um, thinking through the notions of visiting. Um, and that visiting concept really can weave all the way through many different practices of, of Indigenous methodologies by many Indigenous folks, not just scholars, obviously, and artists. Um, but then Dr. Dylan Minor, uh, Dr. Robinson, sorry, Dylan Robinson, sorry, Dylan, um, the two Dylans. Um, talked about uh this notion of hungry listening and that's really specific to white settlers and that idea of of hungry listening like kind of that taking and that co-option actually what you're talking about which we are trying to move to uh, away from Mm -hmm. um and dylan's work uh has recently been published in a fantastic book so look at the collection on hungry hungry listening um
0: which is really sort of branching or evolving from this colonial practice of exploitation and extraction. 100%, yes. And culture, but then also.
1: Ideas, um, scholarship, art making, um, that idea that you can really benefit from uh, someone else's culture, Mm -hmm. um, financially and also obviously academically. And I'm a part of that in, in many ways. I'm an academic and I was trained as a specialist of indigenous art. And I've, I've um, had to really think about that methodology and that ethics for myself. And so one of the things I thought a lot about in teaching, um, but also just it for myself, was how can I be a generous listener? So that's one where that responsibility, that ethics of care, that ethics of, of um, questioning and, and one, thinking about what is my role here? How can I embody treaty in this way where I have accountability? Um, But that also in my conversations outside of the context of uh, with, say, non-Indigenous folks, with white settlers, how can I also be a part of bringing people along, uh, providing people with access points, of of sharing information, um, and also learning together? Because I have some ideas, but I'm obviously going to learn a lot more through being open uh, with my listening. So the politics of listening is really about exactly what you're saying, stepping up, stepping back. Also that thing with, with decolonizing is that there's so much that has to be unlearned as much as learning anew. And so if we go in with, with, um, an expectation of knowing everything or, uh, with defensiveness, which happens a lot with white shame and, and, uh, within the context of, of, of white privilege, it's really challenging to be a generous listener.
0: Yeah. Um, That importantly models for students a way of engaging from a place of curiosity instead of a place of fear or guilt or shame, which are actually not very generative places to build from. No, they just create defensive
1: mechanisms, which then just perpetuate spaces of basically colonial violence. Yeah. Um, White supremacy, I haven't even said that. Like, This is the foundation of all that we're talking about um, is white supremacy. And so if you then go into a context of a classroom um, where you have white students, you have indigenous students, you have students of color, you have black students, you have amazing diversity of students. Um and you don't model generosity, I Mm -hmm. think can be a disservice to everybody. Um because the the fact that I I try really hard and and I'm not saying that I always um my aims, you know, I sometimes I make mistakes of course and I the major thing is I take responsibility for them and that I'm always learning and trying new new practices in the classroom. But that everyone is valued. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that your experience, uh, lived experience, your lack of knowledge, your absolute um, Mm -hmm. expertise of knowledge, all of those things are valued, and that you come together as this critical collective Mm -hmm. uh, and share generosity. That does not mean that um, you don't engage or or acknowledge when there's violence in the class or thinking through missteps, which are uh, traumatic for say indigenous students, you have to be accountable at all those times. But if you come from a space of generosity, there's an opportunity to what I call like a, the fact of decolonial care. Mm-hmm. Um, you,
0: yeah. You've really outlined a beautiful decolonial pedagogy. Uh, I'm wondering if you can, I know, well, I'm kind of going in a direction here. I, I've heard some of our students talk about um, experiences they've had in your radical curatorial practice course and I was wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about how you decolonize not only your approach to teaching but also the structure of the class itself and maybe you can talk in in like relation to that context of that class. Sure, thank you. Uh, So I had the opportunity
1: this past year of developing all new curriculum and one of the uh, courses I was able to collaborate um, and developed with actually Dr. Rochelle Dickinson, uh, who was then a grad student and is now, I uh, just recently graduated, um, was of course, yeah, fantastic. Um, Rochelle is an incredible Métis settler, uh, scholar, um, who I also had the opportunity to work with at the uh, National Gallery of Canada for Aben Day, where I was a curatorial team member, and she was one of the he- kind of uh, key curators in house. Anyways, so we co-curated this and, why I say co-curate is that at the time, Rochelle was a PhD student and I was on Rochelle's um, uh, committee. And rather than just doing an RA ship where the student provides me with a bibliography and then I kind of expand on it, we actually thought through what would a methodology look like where we're both mentor and mentee at the same time, where there's actually reciprocity. And so we developed this course, and it's as much hers as mine. And obviously, it'll change and develop depending on the location that we teach it. Um, and so radical curating was an opportunity to think about social justice and activism through curatorial practice. We see artists doing this all the time. And the methodologies artists are, are engaging and presenting to us are phenomenal and profound and have so much meaning. And in terms of actual um, structures and methodologies for creating systemic change, I would say. And in many times, sorry. Oh, sorry, yeah, no, go ahead.
0: <laughs> Did it look like a normal class? Um, well, in the
1: sense that we had a, like a syllabus, definitely, but the key thing was that we wanted to think about what were those methodologies as curators? Um, what could those look like? We, we could see them through artistic practice, but it's not just, we didn't want to just, um, you know, engage with a practice of, of art making that was activist, but actually create an ethics and a methodology of curating that was activist. So a huge component of that was coming together as a a collective of curators to put something on, to actually not only think about curating in terms of a theory, but also actually activate it and create whatever it was, some kind of product of some sort. And so we decided that we were going to do a performance series which I had done prior to with another group in a different kind of class. And so that opportunity for experiential knowledge, which I think is really important um, because that idea of applying and bringing forward ideas and and methodologies that we're thinking about and thinking through, but also in terms of students, just professional development and thinking about where they go after in terms of um, whether it be grad school or professional practice, those kinds of things. So I had this unbelievable group of students who like, I I, and Julian, you know, I've talked about this, like, all the time these are undergraduate students where I'm thinking through all these ideas many of which I like came and came to really understand and know during my PhD and then through the past 10 years of of working um, within the context of being a professor and they're taking these ideas to the next level and they're working together and they're being generous and sometimes there's not like there's not always an idea that we are in agreement but there's always a level of care and generosity that they brought forward to each other Mm -hmm. and and that was challenging because there was there was you know 14 people trying to come up with a curatorial
0: statement Um, people it's a lot of people are there ever moments where things kind of go off the rails or there's i mean i think i mean for sure i think or, or
1: well that's the thing there could always be failure and i think that's an important component of decolonial pedagogical um practices the fact that we have to try things out. Now, by failure, I don't mean we traumatize indigenous students or you know students in general, That the fact is that we, we might have an idea of, okay, we're gonna do this performance series and then actually this is not working out. We need to change it up. Um, we can't have conventional expectations. Uh, there can be still expectations of learning and learning outcomes in that way, but what actually ends up happening in terms of the result product, whether it be a paper or a performance series, could look very different. And I think um, these students were incredible where they worked through the challenges um, and they worked together to figure things out. And there were times where people had to step back and step back in, um, and we made sure that we had class principles that supported that. And that class principles, we had a document that was a living document where we kept going back to as a kind of a Google doc, and we could go back to those things. And one of the kind of concepts that kept coming about was stewardship. And so as a treaty practice, as a a practice of of radical care and of generosity and students, because many of the students are coming from activist backgrounds as well themselves in their own own practice, but also with communities. And so that made the most sense. And so when we had that kind of concept, then we could go back to it when we were having struggles trying to figure out what's the best sentence here or whatever it is that we were trying to figure out. Um, But there is always the potential of absolute failure. (laughs) And um, I, you know, can really credit the students. They were the ones that brought all of that forward, and they did an incredible, and I think really compelling uh, performance series. They had a catalog, they created a beautiful catalog, and they also thought through the notion of generous listening and generosity when they worked with artists that we brought into the series. And um, watching that was absolutely inspiring to me, and um, and that opportunity to work with uh, such committed um people. Um I, I you know I always learn from them. And so that's why we trying to think about that idea of generosity. Uh, mm-hmm. Because calling people out or canceling them out immediately in the context of a classroom where maybe someone hasn't had the opportunity to learn is a responsibility especially of myself as a white settler educator. It's my responsibility to figure out how do I connect with that person, how do I bring that person into access points of information and knowledge and truth telling where they can witness And, but also they can be heard and so that they are part of, of, of a next generation of thinkers and activists, artists, and, and, and doers that contribute to another decolonial future that I don't even know what looks like. And I make this joke, but I I mean it. I hope these students when I'm older will invite me to their symposium or their, whatever they're doing, um, um, because I'm always learning from them.
0: I think like what you're describing is so beautiful in the idea that it's not a top-down relationship, but that you are in a reciprocal exchange with students and and a collaboration. Um, can you touch a little bit on collaboration and why collaboration is central to a decolonial practice and especially for you and how that's worked over the years?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. So one, collaborating for me makes everything more meaningful. Um, I've been able to, again, it's based on relationships of, of trust. And um, I have uh, my, one of my collectives that I work with a lot is Glam Collective. And um, that's myself with um, Dr. Julie Nagum and Dr. Heather Gloliorte, And um, we are a collective of obviously indigenous and non-indigenous, myself being the, the non-indigenous member. And we think through theory and methodology, um, and activate space for public engagement with Indigenous art making, research, but mainly collaborative um, opportunities for for mentorship and visiting. And um, that collaboration has been so significant for me. We've learned so much working through things together, but it's also been so much fun. And um, we've been able to do things such as um, be co-edited, the first special issue of Global Indigenous New Media and Digital Art with Public several years ago. Um, Heather and I had the opportunity of uh, co-editing the first um, special issue of, on Indigenous Art for RACAR, the Revue d'Art Canadien, Canadian Art Review. And um, these collaborations um, provide opportunities for us to really explore our practices individually, but also how, what does it look like when you do it together? And um, so I see that really as a treated relationship in many ways, but it's based mm-hmm. upon years of trust. Um, Heather and I met in, a, in a, during grad school, during a master's degree at Carleton. And I met Julie, um, Dr. Julie Nagum, soon after I was just finishing my PhD. And so it's been, you know, a decade or more of us working through things together. So that's one kind of collaborative um, project. And with that, we work on many different projects together. So Heather's currently leading an incredible project. Please check this out, Inuit Futures. Um, and that's thinking through Inuit leadership in the culture sector. Uh, if you have any Inuit students, um, please check in with, with Dr. Heather Goliarte at Concordia University. So if you just Google Inuit Futures, is a wonderful website. And we have this growing critical mass of Inuit students um, who are absolutely Phenomenal in terms of what they're already doing and where they're going to take us. I don't know, but I can't wait to see it uh, Dr. Heather, uh, Dr. Julie Nagum, who's recently started a CRC2 at University of Winnipeg now has um, another uh, shirk project called uh, Space Between Us, which is also a global network thinking through uh, indigenous new media and digital art making um, and in connection to engagement with public space and um, that, that website has also just been launched. If you want to check that out, that's an un- unbelievable Indigenous leadership group. And I get to be a part of that, which I'm really, really grateful for. Um, and there's other projects that GLAM kind of intersects with, such as uh, Dr. Janine um, uh Counter Archive uh, big project as well. And so those types of collaborations have developed over time. They're based on relations and being in relations, um, not in a way that has been rushed or,
0: um, you know, for, for the purposes of a grant, you need to be have collaborators. So I think. That's a pretty significant departure from the status quo in academia and in curatorial practice.
1: Yeah. And I think right now, so we have this kind of post-TRC moment. We have black lives matter movement currently happening. We also have kind of this critical, um, Uh, momentum around realizing the kind of lasting legacies of colonialism through systemic racism that impact all kinds of bodies um Mm -hmm. that are racialized Mm -hmm. so there's going to be institutional yearnings to Mm -hmm. decolonize to make those collaborations for community Mm -hmm. engagement and so i think it's a time for us to, to step back a little bit as academics Many of you are already doing this work, and so I hope that you can share that type of practice with your colleagues and your students and your institutions, um, but also amongst ourselves, and to to think about how to do this in a good way.
0: Right, and that it's important to step back and take time, and that, I mean, I think the impulse to, uh, to do decolonial work and uh superficially put it plug it into an academic program or like the current discourse is um troublesome because it doesn't actually change and so i think like that's something that i find myself struggling with like how do you meet deadlines how do you do things according to like an academic year or and you know like constantly remembering like the importance of the anti-colonial or the anti-capitalist um drive to not to disrupt individualism or the idea of you know single author or those kinds of like collaboration is key in those moments
1: yes, and totally, and then thinking about the kind of urgency of decolonial work mm. which is different for everyone, so the urgency of say language revitalization like there are some real and, and the urgency of of decolonizing um, structures that are consistently violent for, say, our students um, in the context of our classrooms. So there are those things. And then there is that individual pursuit, right? And the institution wanting to um, perform some of those politics. And there are institutions that are, are actually doing things in meaningful ways. And you can see that, um, some examples we're thinking about at at the WAG, my colleagues, Dr. Heather Goliarte and and Julian Agum were leaders of an indigenous circle, advisory circle for the Winnipeg Art Gallery. Um, And also leading up towards the launch, the opening, the amazing opening of the Inuit Art Center. And um, the fact that uh, my colleagues were able to create a structure where an advisory group was brought forward thinking about the land the context of winnipeg but also the Inuit art center and having that not only mean an advisory group in a symbolic way there was an actual structure put in place to decolonize and to make sure there was indigenous leadership at all levels of governance within the winnipeg art gallery so that's a really exciting model to look mm-hmm. to there's also been models where Artists run centers and places have actually stepped out and brought other folks in to kind of think through their structures. So Mm -hmm. I think there's some really great models out there and there's going to be more. And many of you are working on those and I hope people can share them. And I think that's also the act of generosity in the academic pursuit. There's a lot of territorialism. And I think one of the most significant things around decolonial practice is that there is that kind of um, access sharing, information sharing. At the same time, that's coming again from a privileged space. For Indigenous folks, there needs to be protectionism around Indigenous thought and thinking. And so again, we're, we're, we're kind of working through dy- uh, dynamics of, of pluralities, of, of care, of thoughtfulness, and it has to always be located in specificity.
0: Which is a little bit like the project that you are working on with Dr. Leah Dechter.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, we are so excited about this project um because of the people involved uh we have had an opportunity to do a special issue for public and um it'll be coming out next year uh we were overwhelmed with uh submissions we invited some folks and then we had a lot a lot of people submit um unsolicited and it's a thinking through um critical engagements art space engagement uh by non-indigenous folks but also collaborations with indigenous folks of settler colonialism so that arts-based critiques of settler colonialism by people of color by black artists and scholars and curators as well as white settlers and um it's amazing because it it really showcases some of the the kind of um, trailblazers in these fields in this in this way of thinking um people that have been working for generations and um we really want to acknowledge all of the work that many of you have been doing um and in some cases in kind of siloed in, in institutional context so we really want to bring that forward and then also thinking about a next generation um and the things that they're thinking through around kinship um and thinking through the significance of, of queering some of those conversations as well so i'm so excited about this and i get to work with unbelievable folks so we're doing that right now as a we a means to kind of um, further the conversation and mm-hmm. to have institutions think about how can we do these things in meaningful ways to stop the performance of good settler politics institutionally and individually um, mm-hmm. within the context of Canadian arts community. Um, It's time, it's time for folks to step up. Many people have already been doing it. And so that's an acknowledgement there, but that this is an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. And if there's ego involved that we're just going to get tripped up in another perpetuation of of colonial order.
0: Well, it's such a helpful collection of not only academic writing, but also artist projects or different methods and ways of approaching this, which is helpful. Um, This is a nice segue maybe to my next question and perhaps my last question, the last thing that we can talk about, which is thinking about the powerful potential that contemporary art practices pose as um, an opportunity to decolonize a settler colonial imagination. And so I wonder if you could sort of leave us with or talk about a few projects that you think are especially poignant.
1: Definitely. Thank you. Oh, this is such an exciting question. So, I learned about Southern colonialism through art, mm-hmm. artists, mm-hmm. indigenous artists who have been taking risks, who have been so courageous and brave and brilliant. Um, artists like Jeff Thomas, artists like Shelley uh, Nero, Rebecca Belmore, um, Cheryl Lirondel, uh folks who've been doing this for decades, generations, and also that are tied to many cases to families um, of, of makers and thinkers um the list is is huge and i would be happy to share any of that information with everybody but artists as in the context of settler colonialism with indigenous art making they've been showing us and creating these methodologies of engagement and so then you think about what does that look like from a from a non-indigenous perspective from from a white kind of uh, settler perspective and that's where i I actually encountered the work of leah dector and so i was moved by her her risk-taking but in such thoughtful and meaningful ways. And I was had the opportunity of writing about her work for the Campbell River art gallery several years ago, um, but also her collaboration. Uh, so the work that she did with Leah, with um, Jamie Isaac, uh, an amazing indigenous curator now working at the Winnipeg art gallery um, and their activation of, of their Blanket Project, which toured from 2010 to 2016. And we actually were able to bring it here to the Anna-Lea Gallery, um, thanks to the collaboration with um, the director, Melanie Colosimo. And that was a site of activation and collaboration. And so thinking about those methodologies, artists are always the ones who are bringing forward the methodologies and the theory. Like it's in what you do artists. It's amazing. And there's people like me who aren't makers anymore. Um, I I think about things. I I teach about things um, and I I write, but I'm no longer a maker. And so witnessing that and thinking about those practices um, and then figure out how do you write about that? And how do you then also start bringing forward uh, methodologies uh, that mirror or parallel or complement. Um, and so contemporary art right now, thinking about um, issues around, you know, memorialization and settler responsibility and Black Lives Matter, um, thinking like, pay attention to those artists. Uh, mm-hmm. They provide us with unbelievable access points, um, pathways, mm-hmm. um, points of, of, of learning, spaces for remembrance, uh, critical, which is critical to the colonial kind of decolonial process, which is Really, the the project of amnesia, right? That that not remembering of colonial processes and histories. So, look to Rebecca Belmore's "Victorious," which is about residential schools, or um, thinking about Wounded Knee and her "bury my heart" piece. Um, thinking about projects coming out of places and collectives like osisiwan which is this unbelievable women's collective coming out of um, Edmonton and Indigenous um, curators group that are really bringing forward important conversations around Indigenous making, but then also Bush Gallery, uh, Tanya Willard and land-based approaches. So there all of these um, uh, practices, they're, they're being done. And so folks like myself, like academics, we just have to pay attention.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's such and, an, an amazing um, embodied way, embodied engagement with so many of these ideas and these theories and generous in the ways that you described before.
1: Yeah, and and there's all these different practices. Some of them are based in resurgence. So think about the work of like Ursula Johnson, Mi'kmaq artists and Jordan Bennett, Um, or think about kind of that kind of uh, self-determined representation through really kind of shifting the colonial lens, the work of Casey Adams at her perception series, which is an urban series, unbelievably uh, potent, thinking about the impacts of stereotypes. scowanati's work around kind of indigenous futures Mm -hmm. so indigenous artists in terms of the dynamism of that of a community in canada or the united states globally Mm -hmm. um they came up the work of lisa rejana in 2017 it was also um, pursuit of uh, venus um, which is an unbelievable panorama multi-channel installation which Mm -hmm. rethought um the kind of colonial wallpaper of the Pacific that was really prevalent in the 1800s. And she reimagined and she also created a generative space of having kind of performances of actual histories and lived experiences of indigenous peoples in the Pacific. So the decolonial practice in art making is about that context of creating a a living archive of, of reclaiming of disrupting of resurgence practices Um, That's all happening within Indigenous arts making. It always has been. Um, And you can see that in scholarship of people like Leanne Simpson, uh, Audra Simpson, um, these, you know, these thinkers that are outside of the context of our history, Mm -hmm. but that we are definitely informed by. And so now it's time for for non-Indigenous folks to kind of step up, and especially white settlers to step up and think about What does it mean to be able just to make what does it look like to happily engage with settler colonialism doesn't have to be about it but what what does it look like when you actually bring forward a methodology of settler responsibility where you are always thinking about uh not necessarily um uh that notion of of allyship but what does it mean to be an accomplice so what does it mean to be a co-agitator or a collaborator in that way i think that could be really amazing to see more people because there are people doing it but but more of a critical mass of thinkers. Cause I think then we would actually see decolonial practice happening um, and significant shifts because indigenous folks, black folks, people of color, have been doing this work for generations. And I, I am excited to see what it would look like if we started seeing more academics and artists coming from a white settler place who could take on some of that responsibility and, and clean up that colonial debris.
0: <laughs> Carla, thank you so much for your generous Um, sharing of ideas and the work that you and others have been doing. It has been such a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Julie.